Good afternoon, all. It's November 20th, 2020, and this is Coffee with Jim. Today, it's our great pleasure to have with us Dr. Farley Cleghorn, who is an international expert with over 30 years experience in international health development, research, program implementation as an infectious disease thought leader, and epidemiologist, with particular focus on HIV and AIDS. At Palladium, Farley leads the global health practice and interdisciplinary team in four markets, US, Europe, Middle East, Australia, Pacific, focused on holistic responses to global health priorities based on sustainable health systems. He has a distinguished career at the US National Institutes of Health, serving as a senior scientist and faculty member at the University of Maryland Medical Center and is trained in internal medicine and infectious diseases. Farley, it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, I always find it a little bit, a sense of discomfort talking about myself because I try not to see myself as remarkable in any way. I, I do think that I've been given a lot throughout my life, and I think it's only fair that I give back some of it. Yes, just appreciate your many experiences and wisdom that we're gonna get into today. But before we do that, I know you have many interests, of course, inside medicine and outside of medicine, but some of those include literature, tennis, history. So a couple of quick questions for you, Farley. Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal? Roger Federer. So next one, William Shakespeare or William Faulkner? That's a tough one because I have to say that early in my life, I would have definitely said William Shakespeare. And I think as a writer, who captures the human experience, there has never been, and there's likely never to be, a person who captured the diversity of human experience as he did. But I do love William Faulkner. And I, you know, having moved to the United States as an adult, I feel that there's a growing appreciation for the literature of the U.S. And, and in this case, uh, the literature of the Southern U.S., where, you know, in a place like Oxford, Mississippi, such a great tradition of expository writing evolved and still is evolving today. Well, I'm going to shift gears to our last one then. Gandhi or Mandela? Well, that's a really tough one. I think they are actually on the same spectrum. These are two individuals who, in trying to do better for their own countries and communities, identified universal themes that resonate throughout human history and will continue to resonate. I see them both as giants of the human experience. That is true. Well, Farley, as you know, our theme today is meeting the moment. We've talked a little about a few of those leaders. Others will come up. Let's start with a brief retro look at your fascinating accelerated career and leadership journey. Part of what we'll touch on today is why you think maybe we're not in a pandemic, but rather in the midst of a syndemic, you'll define that later. You'll take us through what type of leadership is required today to meet the moment and guide us through this multi-layered public health crisis. A word about your history, you graduated medical school at 21 years old, you went to NIH on the only viral epidemiology fellowship in the world at that time. You define yourself as a physician scientist, did incredible work with many global greats, including Dr. Robert Gallo, whose work on HTLV-1 is globally known. You've navigated previous epidemics like HIV AIDS in the 80s and 90s. You worked with Drs. Fauci and Redfield. Just briefly for us today, can you take us through top one or two pivotal moments in your earlier career that have prepared you for what's going on in public health today? Sure. So I graduated medical school very young, but you know, on the 
on the British side of the pond, this is not unusual. So the way that it works is usually you do what's called A-levels, which is part of your high school experience that is pre-university. And then you enter professional school. And that is something that you enter very young. And you're doing this to become a physician. Now, a physician, as you know, is, is a technician. He is or she is meant to help the person who is in front of you. And this defines the physician experience for the majority of doctors and other healthcare workers. And there's nothing more satisfying than dealing with a patient and having a positive outcome. However, in order to truly impact the human experience at the population level, to make big change, you have to get beyond the individual patient. And this has been recognized for quite a long time, but it's only been formally codified in the last 50 or 60 years, you know, with the great stability in the world after World War II. The, the idea of the old apprenticeship training schemes for doctors to become excellent technicians, whether it's medicine, surgery, or any other field of specialty, we advanced enormously. We learned so many things, but still, in order to make big change, you have to get beyond the individual patient and to understand both the antecedents of disease and lack of health, as well as the impact of disease and the lack of health, and to do that with large numbers. And hence the science. The science says, what are the methods that you can use to understand the bigger picture? And you can do that by looking at all of human experience, or you can go very, very, very deep on something very narrow, such as in the laboratory. Can I understand this virus better, for example, and then tie it to what it does in human population? So this was something to me that emerged. It wasn't always clear that there were pathways that you can choose that took you outside of the standard interests of clinical medicine, no matter how well-trained you are. You know, if you're doing heart transplant surgery, you're doing one patient at a time. Whereas if you think in much broader terms and you want to understand, well, how does heart disease evolve in humans, then you have to go much broader and you need many, many groups of patients to study that. So I hear you talking, right, for big change requires the bigger picture. Yes. And so... Thus, as a physician scientist leader in 2020, what else did you learn from the, let's say, the HIV pandemic that is most relevant now during this COVID pandemic from a global health leadership perspective? I, I would preface my response by saying that leadership itself, which is a, a set of skills that you acquire, that you can be trained in, leadership itself was never really the focus of any of the physician scientist tracks that have evolved in the United States and Europe and elsewhere uh, over the last 50 years. It was assumed that leadership would come with your advanced training and that with your greater experience. And I would say that is true. However, leadership, like every other skill that a physician acquires, can be taught, it can be elevated, and it can be evaluated. I just want to put that out there. Leadership 
is a thing that we can train for. It's no, it's very clear from my experience with multiple pandemics, infectious diseases are going to be with human populations for a very long time. When I was first training, when I was first introduced to HIV, well, I knew it before it was HIV. I was first introduced to viruses through HDLB1. And you mentioned Bob Gallo, who, of course, is the discoverer of HDLB1 and a co-discoverer of HIV. The, the notion that there were viruses that had infected humans and caused disease that I could see in my patients, this is exactly how it worked. I saw the disease before I saw the virus because we didn't know the virus was there. There was an effort funded by the US government to understand cancer-causing viruses. And that is how Bob Gallo in 1980 discovered that there was such a, a virus in humans. It's called HGLV-1, and it has a cousin called HGLV-2. When HIV was first discovered in 1985, we called it HGLV-3. It, it gives you the sense that, first of all, you have to observe what's going on in humans at the patient level, that is the individual level, as well as at the group level, the population level. Everything is built upon the store of knowledge that you have already. The idea that we had, because we had animal models that said we had cancer-causing viruses in animals, we were looking for them in humans. The ability to actually make that discovery by the Gallo Lab at the National Institutes of Health really opened up a new field. It allowed us to discover HIV. HIV was a much broader and more significant pandemic than HGLV-1. It affected people all around the world. It was spread primarily through a very intimate behavior, sexual activity. And sexual activity and its consequences had generally been relegated to sort of the outer periphery of science because they were still seen in the context of, I think, the old moralistic notions of how humans behave. But HIV changed all of that. It said to us, here is a virus, some, something new that we had not known before, that is transmitted by intimate human behavior, years later can result in death. And it was a horrifying death. That, that really, to me, brought home the impact of what we were beginning to know. The death from AIDS was horrifying. People were discriminated against, that we had no treatments. People died in hospital without the benefit of their loved ones. They were stigmatized. The behaviors, the intimate behaviors that I referred to were criminalized. There are many, many parallels between the early HIV epidemic and the current coronavirus pandemic that resonate for me, that take me back and also take me back to how we countered those issues. A great history there and a great place for us to then pivot, Farley, about a syndemic. Yes. And right, you, talk, you talked about a horrible death from AIDS and the, the stigma that goes with us. Tell us more about that and the syndemic. So a syndemic is a term that was first used in the 90s by a medical anthropologist from Connecticut, Merrill Singer. He defined a syndemic as synergistic epidemic. So it's essentially the aggregation of two or more concurrent epidemics or clusters of disease 
in populations where there is some biological interaction. What do we mean by that? That they exacerbate each other or they exacerbate the impact of each other. And you can have more than one. For example, when when Merrill Singer first used the term syndemic, he was talking, he was referring to the epidemics of HIV, of substance abuse, of poverty, and of lack of education within communities within the US of A. That, of course, is expressed in many ways, not only HIV, but also in the epidemics of opioid abuse, in the epidemics of homelessness, in the epidemics of mental illness. All of that can be linked together. We have to look for how these connect rather than treat them all as separate outcomes, people's choices. And I think this is one of the biggest breakthroughs. In general, we tended to treat behaviors as people's choices. They made those choices and they may suffer the consequences. Whereas when you adopt a more philosophical approach, when you think about how syndemics operate, you can see that the interactions reduce the impact of individual choice, and rather there is something within the group behaviors and the group conditions that allow these epidemics to emerge and to interact. And this occurs not only in medicine. You know, you could say, you know, the 2008 financial crisis it was a housing crisis, it was a an income crisis, it was a crisis of credit, it was a crisis of of many, many things. These are related. We can look for the fundamental underlying connections between these things. That is why the concept of a syndemic is actually helpful in order to understand how people live their lives. So you can look at individuals and families within communities, within society. We call this the social ecological model and you can look for those influences and at what level they operate. And it also provides you with the ability to intervene. If you can identify these interactions, quantify them, you can then say, well, in order to change that, which would have a beneficial change overall, I can do these things. And you can then implement those things and evaluate how much they change the current reality. So today, take us through the pieces of the syndemic. Sure. The next pandemic is always in the future. I think we were all somewhat taken aback that it became very much in the present. And when I say taken aback, it's not that we weren't prepared. We were prepared. We have been doing pandemic planning using a One Health approach for the last 20 years. We have playbooks. We have engagements, international agreements. We have commitments at the level of the WHO and the UN. We have regional commitments that say we acknowledge the threat of infectious diseases and we acknowledge the threat of emerging infectious diseases, that is, ones we don't know that much about. We will do these things in order to prepare a world for these emerging infections. Having said all of that, I think we did not take into account how much a pandemic that, as you have said, is essentially a syndemic. We did not take into account how much human behavior and human political behavior plays into the response. 
We had a pandemic playbook that Tony Fauci always said long before coronavirus. You would ask Tony Fauci, what keeps you up at night? And he would say a repeat of the 1918 influenza epidemic. And so a lot of the effort in pandemic planning went into trying to understand, well, if that happened again, how are we going to meet the moment? How are we going to deal with it? And as I said, there are many uh, playbooks out there that many agencies have, including the U.S. government, that said, here are the things we're going to do. What we did not take into account was how in many other spheres of human life, there would be enormous change as well. So if I were to adduce a couple of those, one of them would be how human beings share information and how they share misinformation and occasionally disinformation. So we have had a complete sea change in how this happens globally. We have a complete sea change in how politicians use this in order to drive apart agreement. We have levels of polarization in societies based on their political affiliation that spills over into their interpretation of facts in every sphere of life. And that includes medicine, health, and guess what? Facts about the coronavirus pandemic. Having said what I've said, we were talking about a repeat of the 1918 influenza epidemic. There are many similarities between the current coronavirus epidemic and the 1918 influenza pandemic. Coronavirus, its official name is SARS-CoV-2. We've seen SARS viruses before. In 2004, we had an expanded epidemic of SARS that killed a little under 10,000 people. And because of that, we started doing even more enhanced planning. Here it is, you have a respiratory virus that's spread relatively efficiently and causes severe lung disease and death. Well, that was almost 20 years ago. In the meantime, we've had other coronaviruses appear in regional settings like MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, coming out of camels, we think. We've managed to control that, even though it's still going on in some parts of the world, like Saudi Arabia. When China reported that they had, this is in late 2019, so December of 2019, China reported that they had about 70 cases of what was referred to as unexplained pneumonia. I'm a member of many infectious diseases groups. And within those groups, people immediately, immediately said, we may have another SARS uh, epidemic on our hands. Within a week of that, Chinese scientists published the sequence of another novel coronavirus, the one we are now, of course, steeped in, which is called SARS-CoV-2. And they published that open access for the whole world to see. And as it turns out, it looked very similar to the original SARS virus from 2004, but there were significant differences. As it turned out, coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 is even easier to transmit through the respiratory route than SARS, the original SARS was. And this virus had, has rapidly spread around the world. Now, when I talked earlier on about pulling influences together to try to understand how this has happened, you have to look at interconnectivity in the world today. Even compared to 2004 with the original SARS epidemic that, as I said, killed less than 10,000 people, 
before it disappeared. Even with those similarities, human behavior has changed remarkably in 20 years. If you just take the number of plane trips that are taken in the world between 2004 and 2020, it is an exponential increase. And just for tourism, humans were taking upwards of 10 billion trips a year, very much greater than what applied in 2004. If you think about communication, 2004 compared to 2020, the way we communicate is vastly different. So you can keep going and trying to peel back all of these, what I call influencers, these aspects of human behavior that have changed in the last 20 years. All of this had to come together with the actual emergence of a virus from an animal host. In this case, we think bats, even though it's not entirely proven. Most of the coronavirus activity we see in the world, bats have the greatest activity. It didn't just take the virus. It took the virus. It took the way the world operates in 2019 and 2020. It takes the way the world shares information in 2019, 2020. And it takes the conditions that people are living in in the world. All of that play together in explaining how coronavirus swept around the world. And as it turns out, the impact of the virus in the body is, is also different from the original SARS epidemic in 2004 where we did not see sustained community spread. With the current coronavirus pandemic, community spread is highly efficient. That high efficiency of transmission, as well as the high mortality and morbidity, particularly among older people, but also, and this is another change, we have the greatest proportion of older people in the human population than we have ever had in the history of the world. And that is because of, as I said, 70 years of relative stability and the fact that everyone can almost experience their optimal life expectancy in the developed world in particular. And then you have a growing pandemic of chronic diseases in the world. And we have been seeing this for the last 20 years as well. We are seeing large chunks of the developed world population, but also the developing world population that have chronic diseases, diseases that we call metabolic, diabetes, hypertension, cancer, kidney disease, all of the sequelae of our modern lifestyle. This also has come together because the higher mortalities in younger people from coronavirus are associated with higher prevalence of these chronic diseases. All of this together, Jim, becomes our understanding of a syndemic. Mm. We cannot actually make a, enough impact on transmission. In order to make impact on transmission, we have to understand how the infection is progressing. We have to be able to test quickly and accurately. We have to be able to identify people who are sick quickly and accurately, get them the support they need in 
hospital, primarily ventilatory support. And we, we have to do that in the context of all the old inequalities that we suffer from. We talk about social inequality and we talk about health disparities leading to differential outcome. In this one country of the USA, which is a big complex country, in this country we have populations that are the most advanced in the world. They're indices, that is, you know, when you look at the outcomes that they experience, they are the most advanced in the world. We also have communities in this country that can be almost geographically contiguous that experience some of the worst outcomes in the developed world and compare to outcomes, health outcomes in developing countries. We have been living with these inequalities that lead to health disparities since the end of Jim Crow, for example. Uh, we have been importing large numbers of workers because Americans don't want to do work they consider to be demeaning, janitorial work, landscaping work, home health care aid work. We have imported a lot of workers that we pay very low wages to do that kind of work. And as it turns out, these people live on the peripheries of our big fancy cities in very overcrowded conditions, and they have to go out to work every day experiencing risk. So we have seen the virus sweep through these communities because of chronic diseases and other comorbid conditions that they're experiencing outcomes that we're seeing only in the oldest people otherwise. This is so complex and I'm glad you explained so many of those pieces, especially this last piece about behaviors, the social inequities contributing to the, the social unrest now. You obviously are an expert in many areas in epidemiology. There's a little bit of positive news coming out recently. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Certainly. At the outset of the pandemic, I mentioned that I think our governments in the West had left open a lot of room for us to do poorly in epidemic control. That is, if we couldn't test accurately in a very uh, timely manner, if we couldn't help people quarantine and isolate with state-sponsored ported mechanisms, we couldn't do income support so people don't have to go out into the world to find their daily bread, then we have to make sure that we're looking for uh, longer-term solutions that can supersede all of those realities. One of those solutions is a vaccine because a vaccine essentially says, well, we don't really care what the conditions are. We can interrupt transmission by making people immune. That's a fundamental premise of vaccination. So it kind of puts off having to deal with all of those intersectionalities that we have just recently talked about. But it's a good thing to do because it gives you the time to cope. About June of uh, 2020, there was, well, actually, even going back further, when I mentioned earlier that the sequence of the virus had been published and shared around the world for everyone to use, a couple of companies at that time, so this is early 2020, had taken that sequence and using technologies that have only recently emerged, uh, we're using the sequence to come up with approaches to vaccination. Keep in mind that vaccination, when you vac vaccinate with a product, in the very old days, it was usually an attenuated version of the very same organism that is causing the problem. So when Jenner in 1785 used cowpox to vaccinate milkmaids against smallpox, 
he was essentially starting the field of vaccinology. And so fast forward to today, we have many, many approaches. We don't necessarily use the whole organism to make a vaccine. We take tiny pieces of it. We want to create what we call immunogens, that is pieces of the organism. They can be real, that is taken from the organism itself, or they can be synthetic, devised in the lab based on the sequence mRNA or DNA sequence of the virus or the protein sequence. With the published coronavirus sequence early in 2020, a couple of companies like Moderna, like Pfizer, they took that sequence and said, we're going to make mRNA to the spike protein. The spike protein is a part of the virus coat that is, we call it highly conserved, that is, it doesn't mutate very often. And it's also involved in what we call the receptor complex. So in order to enter the cell, the spike protein must merge with the receptor on the surface of a cell. That's called the ACE2 receptor. And that fusion complex then allows the viral RNA, coronavirus is an RNA virus, allows the virus RNA to enter the cell and start reproducing itself. Well, in this case, the mRNA vaccine is allowing the cell to make copies of the spike protein. Those copies become the immunogen. That is, they provoke antibodies to the spike protein. Antibodies to the spike protein interfere with the virus's ability to enter cells, reduce the viral load, so theoretically will make people less infectious, although this is not yet proven, but it reduces the viral load in the body and it reduces the morbidity and mortality associated with infection. This, which was entirely dreamt up based on what we know about the science, turns out to work relatively well. Now, there are many other vaccines coming down the pike, many of which are not mRNA vaccines. Some of them are vectored vaccines. Some are what we call component vaccines. Some are other approaches. But these two products have shown that uh, in a double-blind, randomized, phase three clinical trial, where you give half the volunteers vaccine, you give half the volunteers placebo, that looking at natural risk for coronavirus, all of that natural risk seemed to occur, or 95% of it, occurred in the placebo arm, which tells you that the vaccine is doing something to protect people from coronavirus and from COVID-19. So that is where we are today. Very encouraging news. Okay. Both companies, we believe, are making applications, something called an emergency use authorization application. And to interrupt a second, we're talking about Pfizer and Moderna? We are indeed. They're both making EUA applications to the FDA. What is an EUA application? Well, it's not a full approval application, and they will do that too, but they must wait until each volunteer in the clinical trial has at least two months of follow-up from their last shot. Remember that there's need for two shots to achieve their effect. They will be making the full applications, but in the meantime, they are doing an emergency use application. If that succeeds, they will be able to market that product based on the regulatory approval. There's still an additional step that needs to happen where it goes to the CDC to a committee called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that recommends how an approved product should be used, who should be given the product first, in what sequence, 
what kind of follow-up for adverse events are we doing, uh, and generally setting the conditions for the use of the product. So these happen in sequence, and they can happen relatively quickly. The best case scenario is that we will have about 40 to 60 million doses of either of these two products for use by the end of the year. Now, 40 to 60 million doses means 20 to 30 million people. And we have a job to do to select who those people are. And I think, you know, we have many frameworks, some of them developed by national agencies like the National Academies of Sciences that say we will prioritize in this way. We will give it to frontline healthcare workers first. Then we will add the elderly people over the age of 65. Then we will add other essential workers, people who have to go out to earn their daily bread, and not the lucky ones who can stay home and work remotely like I can. Eventually, as more and more doses are produced, and by then we may have more and more vaccines, understanding how to cover the population with vaccine products. Because you may have heard the term herd immunity, and we only use that term with reference to vaccine coverage. And we think we need about 70% coverage in order to achieve herd immunity. That would be the minimum. Mm. Okay, so all promising will follow this closely, and I would love to continue to stay in touch with you. Beginning to wrap up today, Farley, you've yeah. shared in previous discussions health as a human right. You just talked about some of the different populations that might be targeted first for herd immunity and for that uh, human right. Tell us yeah. a little bit more about that, um, and then we'll get into kind of wrapping up and an ideal leader today. Well, Jim, I think, again, over the last 70 years, there has been increasing global agreement on what the rights of the individual are. So, the U.S., for example, loves to think in terms of the individual bill of rights, but surprisingly, in a place like the United States, health is not one of them. So unlike most of the developed world, where health is recognized as one of the fundamental basic human rights, in order to express your other rights, you need good health. The struggle has been uh, not in achieving global agreement on this. Uh, we, we've had commitments, for example, since the 80s on health for all by the year 2000, for example. That was a campaign by the WHO to get governments to not only articulate this right, but to uphold this right. In the US, you would have known over the last 20 years, we've had a huge amount of political upheaval around health. Health is actually the most expensive sector of our economy, yet it is the least performing sector of the economy. If we compare our basic health indices to say Canada or to the UK or to Western Europe or to Australia or to Japan, you can keep going down the list. There are many countries that perform better overall than we do as a country because they recognize health as a fundamental human right. And I think that is one of the missing pieces we see in the U.S. You know, if I try to pull together, as I mentioned earlier, the huge numbers of so-called essential workers that must go to work every day because their jobs are considered essential to the economy, but their health is not considered essential 
to their jobs and the value that we invest in them, these so-called essential workers, and they cover many, many sectors, including in the health sector itself, the value we place in them is very low. This calls for a fundamental reimagining of how we place value, not only on what people do in their lives, but on their health. Well, that gets us into our topic today, again, meeting the moment. So what should be the role of our leaders, whether that's heads of state, you know, during a national and or a global health crisis, you know, and or medical leaders? We need collaborative leadership, leaders who not only engage with the science and the practice, but leaders who encourage their thinkers, their policymakers to look at all of the evidence, to see how things interact, to understand the big picture. Otherwise, we're just tinkering at the margin. Yes, something like a vaccine can cut through a discussion of how did we get here in the first place? Because it's a piece of technology that we can rapidly give to people. But it does not obviate the need to understand that big picture because this is not not going to happen again. As human beings, we are biological beings. We could not exist without microorganisms and microorganisms represent an existential threat to us as well. This is the fundamental contradiction of life as a biological being. What a conflict. <laughs> Indeed. In wrapping up then, what makes an ideal leader today? Well, today we, as I said, we need collaborative leadership. There's so much out there to know. There is no leader in the world who can know everything. So you will find that, that most leaders are surrounded by a technocracy. A technocracy are the people who, who know deeply certain things. So if you have lots of people, all of whom know deeply certain things, we have to be able to bring that together in order to meet the moment. The leaders are the people who help to bring it together by being collaborative, sometimes being directive. Yes, there's room for that. But collaborative is more important. We need people who can look at the similarities in what we're experiencing and say, that gives us some common thread through which we can find some mitigating factors. When we look at the experience of coronavirus in the US, the, the thing that jumps out to me immediately is a failure of leadership. We have had an utter failure of leadership at the administration level. All leadership has devolved to the states. Some states are ready to lead and some are not. Some take their cues from the national. We don't have the luxury of doing that anymore. I can't tell you how excited I am to have a leader that will come in in January who will actually try to do some of this, who is not afraid to be advised by the people who know, but who takes responsibility for the political decision-making that comes out of knowing. That is what I'm looking forward to. Yes, and there are many, many looking forward to that too. And in fact, as you know, you probably saw a letter coming out recently from the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association and the American Nursing Association to urge the current administration to share, to collaborate, as yes. you said, for the countries in the country's best interest. Yes, I think that's an excellent notion. I am astounded that it has to be requested. 
I think all the norms of previous transitions have been thrown out the window, but I'm still hopeful that the weight of the evidence is going to force this to happen in a very short time. Yes. Well, I share that hope with you, and I say a huge thank you to you, Dr. Cleghorn, for your time and expertise and wisdom. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you, James. It's been my pleasure.